You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. David Deal is the founder of and principal attorney at the law office of David C. Deal, PLC, located in Charlottesville, Virginia. He is a nationally recognized intellectual property attorney specializing in copyright infringement matters on behalf of photographers and businesses. David has successfully litigated cases of all sizes and complexities in a majority of federal jurisdictions. Recently, David successfully represented photographer Russell Brown in his appeal of a federal court's ruling that a nonprofit film festival that used one of his photos they found on Flickr had not violated copyright by using a cropped version of that very same photograph. David is also a photographer in his own right. In 2001, Alter Books published Prospects, a portrait of minor league baseball, a collection of David's photographs and short essays on minor league baseball. His fine art photographs are included in the permanent collections of major museums and private collectors United States. We're going to talk to David about the Brahma case and also try to clarify a few legal questions that we have. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great having you here. Let's start talking about this uh, Brahma versus Violent Use Productions case. Give us the background of that. What happened? Uh, the case is actually, the, the, the facts of the case are actually quite simple. And uh, it, Mr. Brammer is a 20-something-year-old uh, photographer just starting out. Uh, he took a very nice, well-composed, uh, well-thought-out photograph of a, of a cityscape. And uh, the defendant in the case, Violent Hughes Productions, who runs the Northern Virginia Film Festival, decided to use Mr. Brammer's photograph as well as a, a number of other photographs on a page depicting places that filmmakers and, and uh, guests to the film festival might visit while they were in Northern Virginia or Washington, D.C. And obviously it didn't sit well with with my client and when we contacted the film festival they they refused any kind of negotiation and refused any kind of compensation so through uh, really a kind of a, a quirk uh, it ended up landing with a certain judge in the in the eastern district of virginia who at least from my perspective didn't want to dedicate too much time to the to the to the real legal matters and and dismiss the case based upon the defendant's uh, assertion of fair use. And that's how it ended up with. Is that because circuit. the judge really didn't understand the rules of copyright law? It, it, we don't know. Uh, the opinion was remarkably for, for such a, uh, a, what can be a, a complex and nuanced, uh, legal issue, fair use. It was a three page opinion. And, and that's covering four distinct elements of fair use as defined by the Supreme Court. So it was short and sweet. Uh, you, you know, if I were to guess, I think the judge wanted to get rid of it. And, but with that, we, we were given an opportunity. And the opportunity was we were unwilling to, to live by the, the judge's decision and we appealed it to the Fourth Circuit. And that gave us a chance to, to fully argue it in both 
uh, brief form as well as oral arguments before the judges. Now, do you think one of the reasons why the judge might have just blown it off, for lack of better words, is because the photograph that was used wasn't represented as that this is my photograph, I took this photograph, nor was it really being used for any kind of monetary gain, really. It was used as an illustration, as a guide for people visiting this festival. So it's kind of like twice removed. Right. Do you think that might have had any bearing on it? Yes. And and the the bigger picture, the bigger picture is, I mean, the, the, the reason why this case is so, I, I would stop short in calling it important, but ultimately the, the circuit court ruling and the overturn, uh, you know, the uh, the decision to overturn the, the district court's decision is is important because there's been, even even in my relatively short period of practicing copyright law, and limited to to photographers, there has been this slow, constant, steady creep toward the opinion of that judge, and and that is, well, you know, and, and I'm and I'm and I'm summarizing kind of everything that I hear on a daily basis. But well, we didn't really use it, so we didn't really gain anything from it. We're not, we didn't put it on T-shirts, and we didn't put it on mugs, and we're not, we're not gaining directly from that image. And you know, if anything, you know, we we helped your client, you know, by <laughs> and th- and these are I, I hear variations of these same was ten, the photographer's name. Did it appear anywhere in that brochure? Was there a credit given to any of these photographs? Because they say we're giving the the photographer. Yeah, by the defendant, no. And you know, in this case, is a little. It's a little bit different. But the argument by by the defendant in this case is is something that I hear on a daily basis, which is. Well, we didn't really know. It's so complicated. You know, the internet is so complicated. All we did, we we performed a Google search. We found this image, and and you know, we're. I mean, look at us. We're really small. You know, it's you know, no one no one's seen this page, and and therefore there's no harm done. And as a former photog- as a former commercial photographer, and now as an attorney, that's aside from being inaccurate. Right. You know, according right. according to the to the law, it's offensive yeah. because thank you <laughs> that that's not that's not the standard. The standard is not uh, you, know, w- w- you know there's no harm done. You know the 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 level that we used it or the in the way that we used it, uh, you know, quite possibly help helped your client. the The issue is that things have been things. There's this slow, steady creep toward if you never caught us. You know there would be there'd be no harm harm done, and what people don't understand is uh, photograph commercial photographers, especially commercial photographers that are working in the, the environment now, uh, that don't have an established uh, body of film or uh, you know their work hasn't been widely disseminated. It it all but eliminates the value of photographs when they're copied and disseminated, because once they get out without a credit and without compensation, without some way to, to link back to the, the photographer, the value of that photograph just dies. Oh yeah. And that's the issue. Uh, and I think in the judge's defense, he is probably in tune with kind of the general consensus of the general public, which is, you know, we live in a different world. It's different than it was 15 years ago. It's different than the, the internet makes things somehow makes things different. And there's this area that 
wouldn't otherwise exist if it weren't for the internet where individuals that aren't huge companies and doing millions of dollars of business can just trade in this practice of just copying, small scale copying and dissemination of people's images. And that is so inaccurate because from personal experience, pre-internet days, I had my photographs ripped off uh, they'd appear in magazines and all of a sudden I had friends all over and I would get a menu from a restaurant and they're using one of my pictures or an ad for a big holiday sale at a men's big boy shop <laughs> using one of my, and things of that sort, you know, with either directly using the photograph or just really doing horrible retouching, like scratching a beard onto somebody's face. Right. And this is before the internet. This is when people just saw pictures and grabbed them. Right. So it's nothing new at all. One, now, one thing I'm just curious about, uh, there on the site that they found this Flickr photograph, there was a copyright notice, wasn't there? There was. Because there was, from what I'm saying, there's a multiple choice about what levels of copyright, That's right. and it was clicked, and it was, That's it was right. there. Google's responsible for 90-some percent of all searches in the world. Google has a, uh, a notice directly below every single image that you source as a result of a search that says this image may be subject to copyright. Right. And, yeah. and it's just, it is unacceptable for someone to both, you know, legally and otherwise to search for something on Google and throw up their arms after they get caught and say, well, all I did was go to Google. What do you expect? I mean, I, you know, I, it, the photographer's name wasn't watermarked, you know, it wasn't watermarked across the image. That, that is, that is something that unfortunately is becoming just much, much more acceptable. And photographic copyright is, to my knowledge, the only area of law and the only area of, uh, intellectual property where it's acceptable for someone that appropriates someone's photograph to to use that type of defense where you can just you you and I think and I do believe people are are honest and straightforward about it when they when they do break out the defense of you know what what's the harm it's just this little image there wasn't a watermark on it i mean that that kind of standard if you apply it to anything else people would laugh you out of the room. And I ask a question though here, I mean, are, are we going to then ask judges and, and going forward the legal system then to define how we value photography? Because as you're kind of indicating, and even what Alan mentioned pre-internet, uh, the issue is, you know, do we value an image that we find or any image for that matter? And obviously when there are so many more images being created and the value may be tending to go down, you, you kind of implied that the judge may have been just, you know, going with the flow or, or, you know, or he may perhaps feel the same way that a lot of people feel, which is okay. It's just an image, no harm, no foul. Let's just go ahead and use it. So is it going to take, you know, some major case to like just put a slam brakes on this whole idea and perhaps try to get the whole society to change the way they're thinking? Is that even possible? I, I do think it's possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, photography is, it, it, it's easy to do that. It's easy for, for, uh, users that appropriate photographs to do that because the only, in most places, the only place that it exists is online. So it's not a print. It's not a, uh, a sculpture that occupies a lobby. You know, it's, it's, it's not a magazine you bought on a stand. The pictures are being right. delivered to your phone daily. That's right. And along with the notion that 
uh, if you copy it, it's just going to go away. Like if you, after you use, use it, you know, kind of the harm is the potential harm is gone, but that's the, that's what makes photography different is that when you're viewing it on a screen, it's somehow a little bit more detached than a, a, a physical object that occupies different space than a photograph does. And, you know, in my experience, just in the past couple of years, it matters. I mean, I, the Brammer case is a perfect example. I mean, the Brammer case is small potatoes. I mean, fundamentally it is, it is a, it is a small case, but there, there is a tremendous value and my client didn't think twice about appealing it. And my, my firm didn't think twice about representing him in the appeal is because it matters. It matters that we challenge the judges that, that have this notion that something so important and, and, and nuance can be dismissed, potentially be dismissed so easily. But it's also important because, uh, you know, things have changed because prior to the, prior to the fourth circuit, uh, overturning the case, opposing counsel used to throw that case in my face (laughs) (laughs) and say, and say, well, you know, you're familiar with Brammer, you know? And so it's important to the, 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 the IP world specifically the photographic copyright world is, is relatively small. And when, when certain attorneys, you know, usually plaintiff's attorneys make a point of not folding. Um, and, and that's not exactly the, the right word, but not just kind of going with the flow. It makes a difference because now, you know, I can go, I go back to those same attorneys that, that through the, through the district court opinion in my face and say, look, this is not only, it's not only been overturned, but it's over, been overturned by an, an appeals court. And not only has it been overturned, but the opinion is it's detailed. It's, it's very precise and it, and it addresses every single element, every single one of the four elements that make up the consideration of fair use very thoroughly. Can we talk about that? Can you mention the, the four elements uh, and how they applied in this case? In general, uh, the defendant in the case made, made a variation of what, what the vast majority of defendants make the same kind of thing, the same kind of arguments. It's not a legal argument. It's a, everyone, everyone lumps all of their excuses into the fair use argument. It's fair use. Like you know, most people don't even bother going into the four elements. Uh, but so in this case, the, the, the appeals court ruled on every single, all four of them, they ruled in favor, like demonstratively in our favor in all four of them and gave, gave very specific reasons why. Uh, so the, and I know you're going to put me on the spot because I, I, I can't, <laughs> and I can't, rem, I can't remember the order of the, of the elements. But um, so, so one of them is the, uh, the, the nature of the work. So it, whether or not it's a photograph of a, uh, an empty kitchen table or it's a, it's a photograph of, you know, the, the eclipse, you know, that, that, and, and, and kind of artfully done and, you know, in, in a remote location that, that, you know, whose opportunity to, to capture an image only comes along once every, once every 50 years, there's a difference. There's a difference between, uh, although there, there, there's a, a minimum level of originality, uh, that it's built into the copyright statute. There's a difference. There's a difference between a photograph of a white wall and a, and a, and a difference of, uh, the, the, uh, the eclipse in that there's the, the, the court considers, 
the level of creativity, the level of work required, the artistic sensibility, uh, the difficulty, all of those things. How about the financial investment of a photographer? Do they consider that for somebody who, let's say, went to the other side of the world to get a photo? Not explicitly, right. but it's but it's in it's inherent to that mm-hmm. consideration. So um, that's that's part of it. And in this case, you know, Mr. Brammer. W- secured a, a rooftop location to take the photograph, specifically to take the photograph. Uh, he worked out the details of being there at a certain time and it's and on private property uh, on at a at a certain uh, a certain location where he knew uh, you know the light was going to be right, the time of day was going to be light, the sun was going to be setting in a certain time. He produced this image that you know, is, is fairly artistic. I mean, it's, it's not a snapshot. It's a, it's a photograph that uses, uh, timing and exposure and. There was intent. Absolutely. It wasn't just, you know, taking out the phone and going click. Absolutely. There's interpretation going on. It's not just a straight record. It's in, it, there right. was specific things going on right. in there that had to be controlled by the photographer. Right. And that's, um, that's part of the consideration. So the, um, the the fourth one the fourth element which the supreme court has said is the is the most important is the effect of the use on the market for the photographer so how how the appropriation of the work affects the the the, the market for that photo or that work of art um, for the author and in this case the 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 great thing about photography is mr brammer like all of my clients are, they're commercial photographers. They, you know, these days it wasn't, it hasn't always been the case, but these days the business model is completely different from when it was 15 or 20 years ago. And even, and I'm old enough and I was shooting long enough to know what the model was 20 years ago, which was you marketed your work to certain very predictable art buyers and, and editors in hopes of getting hired to shoot a job that they would then select uh, their edits and license what they wanted. Now, uh, I would I would say the vast majority of my clients, which I think are, which I think is a is a fairly fairly accurate snapshot of the of the industry, is that you shoot. They shoot as much as they possibly can. They they pay for trips all over the world to to photograph certain events. They they act much more like stock shooters than they do assignment shooters. And the business model is that they, they use the, the, the free or very, very low cost platforms to display their work. Flickr is a perfect example. Uh, some of my clients have been shooting for 40 years and are in, in, in extremely accomplished and they still use Flickr to display their work because it's cheap and it's, everyone knows who it is. And they kind of, Flickr kind of has the, has the, 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 they occupy this spot in, online where everyone knows where to go. Then the business model is much more of a stock-like business model where you produce the work, it's searchable, it's out there, and in theory, when buyers and editors, instead of instead of starting from scratch and hiring somebody to shoot a shot that they have in their mind or they or they want to get, they they're able to search this vast you know, this vast searchable database of existing images. So there's, there's much more and assignment photography still exists, but I, w- I would venture to say probably my clients on average, 50% of their business comes from reuse and re- licensing where before I would argue it probably, it was probably five or 10%. So when someone like Violent Hughes takes a photograph and doesn't license it, 
that's that's directly affecting my client's bottom line because that they rely on on proper licensing of of their work. They're far less reliant on assignment to assignment work to to make up their bottom line. Does it make any difference if it was a someone who didn't define themselves as a photographer or somebody who had a Flickr account but just put up the work that they happened to take and they had their day job and it, would that make a difference or should it, it make a difference? It does make a difference. And the Violent Hughes kind of a, attempted to make that point. Uh, so in it, other words, if you are just a casual enthusiast posting your stuff on Flickr, your photograph has less value than somebody who took that same picture who relies on every picture to make a buck. No. And so that's how the new business model helps photographers of all types. There is an, a very high percentage of of decent photographs that are in circulation and available and searchable that are taken by amateur photographers and they happen to be they happen to be wonderful photographs. No doubt. Uh, and the excuse or the or the rationalization of of a of a, of a defendant to to argue well, this person doesn't, he's not even, a, he or she's not even a commercial photographer. Like what, what's the big deal? That's, that's ex the exact wrong argument to, to make. It doesn't make any difference legally. Uh, the idea that, you know, someone could, someone could walk down the street and, and take someone's bicycle off their lawn and then rationalize by saying they don't really use the bicycle anyway, that they're missing the entire point. They even keep it on the lawn. You can't ride on a lawn. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know how to use it. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, and, but in this case, the, the defendant, you also, I, from what I read, tried, uh, you know, a few other techniques or a few other arguments, uh, including the fact that, you know, it, well, I mean, I'll let you. Yeah. That. So the so the big one, mm -hmm. the the big one in this case that caused so much, so much dismay in in the in the the, the legal community, was this argument that the defendant exercised good faith yeah. in in their use of the photograph, which up to this point had never been recognized as a factor at all. Right. <laughs> well, I take that back. Bad faith had been used against a defendant. Good faith had never been used as an asset for, for a defendant. And they tried to, the defendant tried to turn, tried to use the inverse of the bad faith argument that courts had, courts had recognized. Can I ask real quick, did, did Violent Hughes have a lawyer that was, you know, well-versed in this? And was this a case that, you know, lawyers decided to take up because it's a big case and let's try to fight it out? Or it just happened to be, you know... Yes, they did. <laughs> they did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they had... They had so a nonprofit a, and a beginning out photographer hired two really big lawyers. <laughs> that's or right. At least two big lawyers jumped in to help out. Yeah. So they... Uh, Violent Hughes originally attempted to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not permitted to do that because they're, they're a business entity. So they... they Hired is not the right word, but uh -huh. um, Kirkland and Ellis uh, agreed to represent them pro bono. So at at any given time, and the case is still active, by the way, because we're back in front of the district court. Uh, but at any given time, Kirkland and Ellis has employed three, I think three is probably, maybe four employees pro bono on the case. So Kirkland and Ellis is, is a giant firm with tremendous resources. They know what they're doing. But, you know, this is... This is something that is is uh, non lawyers find you know rightfully very very frustrating is that you know otherwise 
very educated, very um, intelligent individuals can make these arguments that that are just not viable. And so and they, they tend just to flip this to get to, to say to show they use good faith because one they're a nonprofit, they're helping out the photographer, they they pulled the image down right away. This was their argument more or less, right? That's right. Yeah. And therefore they should not be liable. Right. Uh, and that there was no uh, there was no watermark or no uh, credit embedded in the photograph. And, but doesn't this all kind of boil down to this this idea that we keep getting at, which is that how are we going to value photos? I mean, do, and they're basically saying, well, no, again, no harm was really done. And, and let's not worry about this person, this photographer. Let's just get on with it, you know, and, and let, let the Internet and the market kind of determine right. what's going on. Yeah. And, and, and that's the I mean, that's the battle. Yeah. That's the battle. We we I mean, my I'm uh, the we is my clients and, mm -hmm. and my office and, and lots of other attorneys that, that do the same thing. You know, there is there is a risk that slowly but surely the I, the the legal framework around copyright and photographs is going to change and that's a horrible thing uh you know it, it no other no other uh intellectual property uh discipline is subject to the same creep is photography um a little bit behind the other arts and the other industries in the sense that they've kind of gone through this already and they've established themselves and they've redefined the legal parameters and photography is yet to do that? Is it actually even different from arts? You just said, you know, different photography different than art. Is, I, I think art in general has the same kind of parameters where a lot of people don't take it as seriously as, say, a Coke formula, you know, or, or the ingredients of something uh, uh, that's a commercial product. I think a lot of people view photography and artwork as sort of like this vague, flaky thing done by vague, flaky people. Certainly, Th that is that is certainly. I mean, I've I've experienced it. Uh, for I mean, I experienced it when I was a photographer, and and I experienced as an attorney even more, where it's individuals, otherwise smart, intelligent individuals, are very comfortable making that argument, making that argument that 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 art and specifically photography occupies this this place where it it's fun and and useful and it has a tremendous number of positive uh, aspects to it but it somehow doesn't rise to the level of of protection yeah and and that's the that, that's a disappointing part about things all right so can we then kind of summarize? I mean, you're temporarily won the case. I'm not sure what's, you say, what's you say it's next, still going on. Still going on. It is. And right. what 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 happens what happens procedurally mm -hmm. is that in the federal court system, the the lowest level of of uh, court is the United States District Court. Uh, so everything starts there. Uh, if if it it's potentially potentially a case can end there if there's no appeal. Uh, but we appealed the we appealed the decision uh, on the summary judgment stage, and it was essentially kicked back to the district judge or the district court. So the 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 appeals court stepped in. They said we disagree with we disagree with the district court's uh, ruling on the on the motion for summary judgment. Uh, you must change it. Uh, a circuit court essentially orders the the district court to change their ruling, and then we start from where we were. So we we still have a trial to to prepare for uh, if we're going to go forward. We still have we still have uh, jury instructions to prepare. We're at the we're at the tail end of the trial trial stage procedurally, but the case is not over. Uh, 
I would argue that the the most important part of the of the case is over. The big picture is over. We have this opinion uh, by the the Court of Appeals, which is one one level below the Supreme Court, that that just unequivocally lays out why an argument or variation of the one that Violent Hughes uses is not only not fair use, but it's emphatically not fair use. Uh, and that that's going to, it's going to serve in, unless something dramatic uh, happens in the next couple of years, the case is going to serve as a, as a source of, of hundreds and thousands of pleadings that, that basically stop. Right. Any any similar argument from so it's kind of a watershed. I mean, it may not be a big case in the in, the, in terms of the, the the money values and whatnot, but it may be a an important case. No? It is. Yeah, it is absolutely. At any point uh, when um, when Brown first realized that um, his photograph was used without his permission, did he try to contact him and say, "Listen, you use my picture." There was a fee involved. Did he try to send them an invoice or establish a fee at all? Always. <laughs> and they just we, said, no, is that what I said? Okay. That, that is, that is the story of my life. <laughs> I mean, we, the, the, my firm litigates plenty and we, we litigate, we litigate when it's necessary, but what, what a lot of non-attorneys and a lot of defendants don't realize is that we, and I'm speaking of my clients and my firm mm-hmm. exclusively, but I, I would, you know, my colleagues, we share the same, same approach in that nobody's goal is to spend our time litigating. I mean, there's a time and a place, but litigation is, is inherently inefficient, like dramatically inefficient. And this case is no different. This case is very typical. And we spent 18 months doing everything we could to try to get the company to engage in a substantive discussion about settling the case. And how much did your client actually want for the use of this photograph? Which, in the great scheme of things, is really a small project. It's, it was one picture out of many in a brochure that was a one shot. It's not like right. it's going to be all over the country for the next ten years. We are original. I think we came down a little bit, but but you know when the when it's all said and done, I think our demand was eighteen hundred dollars, and they turned it down. And not only that, the eighteen hundred was based upon a history that my client had for licensing that image. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even it wasn't just pie in arbitrary. The sky. Yeah. And they turned it down. And Why? The, and the argument that we hear, <laughs> the argument that we hear all the time is, and you know, this is, you know, it makes my head hurt because I, I, th- this is, this is something that w- w- my office deals with all the time is that defendants say, well, you know, we were really sorry and you know, you're right, but we just can't afford it. And my argument always is number one, that's an equitable argument, which has nothing to do um, with with the law. But but my 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 response is always, okay, well, let's have an equitable argument. My client is a solo practitioner who usually occupies a pretty low level on the on the totem pole compared to you know an art buyer a company mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. advertising agency uh, now I have plenty of clients that are extremely accomplished and occupy different different space but for the most part commercial photographers that are solo practitioners they are on they are on the lower end of the power structure when when anybody appropriates their work without seeking permission or properly licensing the work 
they cannot stay in business, period. Right. So if you want, if, if, if we want to engage in, in an equitable argument, then I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And my argument is when people steal my client's work, they're out of business. <laughs> so it's plain and simple. And, and what so the, I'm sorry, getting this kind of echoes the question that Jason had and, and, and it gets to this idea of the good faith, bad faith, perhaps, because they could have gone to Getty and gotten an image and they're not going to mess with Getty, but yet they went to Flickr, right? Where they maybe thought they could kind of just escape and grab this thing. So isn't that kind of showing a little bad faith to begin with? I mean, yes. and, and cause they're, they're not going to sue or they're not going to go up against Getty, correct? Yes. Theoretically. And that, and that's the exact argument that the appeals court made. Mm-hmm. The exact appeal, the, the, the argument that the appeals court made was that if anything, the, the, their, their actions were in bad faith because everybody knows, everybody knows Getty. Everybody knows what Shutterstock is. Uh, and the idea that, that you can, you can throw up your hands and, and say, well, I went to Flickr and I didn't consider any of these other options is just, it's, it's not a winning argument. And, and the appeals court called them on it, rightly, rightly so, and said, you know, there are thousands. And, and you know, the, the argument that we make all the time as plaintiff's attorneys is take the picture yourself. You yeah. know, <laughs> if, it, if it's not a big deal, right. you know, and the flip side to infringement, a lot of the flip side to, the, to infringement is, you know, once, once infringers are, are found out, they're like, well, it, the photograph's not that. We could have used any photograph. Mm-hmm. That's typically, well... You, you see how there's a but problem in that, right? But you didn't. <laughs> you you chose you chose to do the 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 quick the, the you know the quick fix or the lazy fix, and you decided to take someone's photograph where it matters. One of the things I read in in, in response to the, the Brammer case was um, why don't we take? I mean, in order to really put an end to this, why don't we take uh, take these issues out of the civil court and make it a criminal case? Is that something that is considerable or? realistic and and then would that really stop people from doing it if they're facing some sort of real heavy fee or, or even jail time believe it or not there is a criminal copyright statute now okay you never hear of it i've never even heard of of it, it's it's never raised uh and i look at it so infrequently i've looked at it but i look at it so infrequently that i, I don't know i don't know the exact parameters of it but there is a criminal copyright statute it involves like the vast majority of criminal criminal statutes, and unlike the civil version of the copyright infringement that is strict liability, uh, the criminal the criminal version and, and it's very narrow has all of these mens rea uh, um, parts to it. Which is there's traditionally there's a there are two parts of a uh, of a of a statute a criminal statute. There's actus reus, which means the actual actions, what you did, you know, broken in somebody's house, hit somebody over the head. And then there's a mens rea aspect of it, which means your state of mind or your intent. The co- the, the criminal copyright, the federal criminal copyright statute has both. So, and, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, it has an even higher standard, which, which has includes knowledge. So a person to have to have violated a criminal copyright statute, you have to have knowledge that is copyrighted. Right. You have to know exactly what you're doing. You have to, really prove you have to act. I think I, I forget what the standard is, but it's like reckless standard. Mm-hmm. And and I know so little about the criminal statute just because you never hear about. And, and I'm not sure. I imagine like any other uh, any other criminal uh, statute, it would have to be brought by some kind of prosecuting. Uh, body, mm-hmm. so it'd have to be brought by a U.S. attorney, right. like other criminal criminal statutes right. need need to be. So right. it wouldn't be; it would be out of the hands of 
of an author of right. a photograph. Right. I see. Yeah. Okay. So maybe just to wrap this section up, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you consider when you're looking at a case, whether you're going to take on that case, uh, from in, in the case of a copyright infringement or something, is there, I mean, do you welcome all comers and, and, uh, or do you say, you know what, this one's not going to really work for you. And how's that, how do you I, play that out? I, I don't have a hard and fast rule. Uh, I, I tend to, I, I tend to still, I, I, you know, I've been practicing for going on seven years now, and I still kind of feel like I've got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when it comes to when <laughs> well, it comes to. Well, I think we all like the fact that you were a photographer and you yeah, seem to really care about this. Yeah, and, <laughs> and and you know, and that's not it's not an act. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, my my clients, especially ones that are starting out, uh, and I used to do this when I was still shooting, I used to feel the same way, uh, toward younger photographers that I, that I had personal relationships with about advising them to, to, you know, take stands when you need to take stands to, to compromise when you need to compromise. And the same principle, uh, is at play here. You know, I, I tend to, I tend to give every case a chance. There are some chance there, there are some cases that uh, through a variety of factors aren't worth anybody's time, you know, including, including an attorney's, uh, because, you know, contrary to, to, to what a lot of infringers claim it's cases are very high maintenance. They take a lot of work. They take a lot of research. They take a lot of, they take a lot of grunt work, uh, just to make sure that we're on solid legal ground. We have our facts straight. Um, we know who the, we know who the proper, uh, entity is that, that, uh, should be compensating the plaintiff. Uh, and that said, I like taking on cases that might not be, might not be large cases. Uh, but in the end, uh, I do my best to explain to my clients that there, there is a threshold. There is a threshold that the, a minimum threshold that, that just needs to be met because it's not going to be, you don't want, you don't want my office or anybody else, any other attorney working on a case that they're not going to be fully involved in because of certain, usually financial factors. You don't want that kind of representation because it doesn't do anybody any good. But that said, there are plenty of, there are plenty of what I would consider modest cases that, that we prosecute and we get, we get settlements out of that are, it's well worth the time. Yeah. Um, this one's know, a little different though, because I mean, the settlement may not end up being worth it. I, I don't know. I have any idea, but the, but you looked at this case as almost like a, you know, potential home run, right? Like this is so, uh, at least the original decision that came down, you're like, Hey, this needs to be challenged. Right. And you took it yes. on for that reason. Yes. Assuming, yeah. yeah. yeah and, and absolutely. Like you get to, I mean, this case is a perfect example. Most cases never even get close to litigation. Mm -hmm. So this case not only got to litigation, but we proceeded through litigation almost to trial. Right of the cases that I litigate, we almost never get to trial. We never even get close. The, the litigation threshold is usually the, usually the point where everyone comes together and says, Hey, look, yeah. <laughs> we need to, this is ridiculous. Right. If it's not the attorneys, it's the judge. The judge will, the most, sometimes judge will step in and say, gentlemen, we are not spending a day's worth of time in federal district court on a case like this. And uh, it's a little disappointing, but you know, my, my, my clients have no other option, but to file in federal court, we don't have a state state court option. So that's why we, we end up in federal court. So, uh, this case made it all the way to trial. And so the Brammer case was a perfect example of, we passed the point of no return 
like like a week after we filed the case because they they lawyered up. They, it was clear that they weren't going away. Pro bono attorneys, a team of three attorneys, made it very clear that they were not going to settle the case. So at that point, you have the option of 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 folding. What do you think the reason was? I mean, why would they? Yeah, that's wrong. Because well, what, what was the draw here? This is such a I hate to say a nothing case, but it's right in the greatest scheme of things, it's pretty minor. It is, and my two cents. You know, there's a difference. Uh, there's a difference between. Uh, a solo practitioner like myself, or even a small firm that has two or three attorneys and a large firm. And Kirkland and Ellis is a large firm, not only a large firm, but a very large firm. The difference is that cases like this case, in w- which they agreed to take, serve a very valuable purpose to their young attorneys, which is practice. So they get all this practice. They get they get real live litigation practice, Got and they it. and they break they break out all the stops. They file all these motions. They go through all they they read the you know they read the statute um, fifty times. They consult with their 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 more experienced attorneys that tell them to do this and tell them to do that. If I were to guess, that's what happened in this case. Any other case and any other experienced attorney would not dedicate the resources and the time that they did, and I think that's what happened here. And they're entitled to do that, and and Violent Hughes is entitled to entitled to seek out pro bono help that is going to fight for them that way. But it wouldn't have happened otherwise if if the dynamics were were different. We're going to take a short break and come back with more about copyright law with David Deal. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we are back uh, with David Deal. Um, just to get back into it, can you give an explanation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, also known as DMCA? Sure. So the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is an addition to uh, the Copyright Act. Specifically, it deals with, it defines uh, what is and what is not uh, infringement based upon the, the, the would-be infringer's position. And that, that I mean, the, the, the key term in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is, is whether or not an individual or an entity qualifies as a service provider. And that's the term that that that's the most inter- important term in in the, the DMCA. If you qualify as a service provider, then you are not liable for otherwise infringing upon people's. Can you give us an example work. of? So a traditional service provider is a uh, telecommunications company that handles technically handles you know well handles the traffic and the 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 digital uh files uh of that that represent photographs so if you are let's say Verizon before the DMCA a point could be made technically that Verizon every time they copied the the digital version of a photograph or any other thing that's protected uh, by copyright infringing. Yeah. They are they are infringing. Wow. So okay. the, the DMCA uh, came along and and defined what it was to be a service provider. Now, service provider, a ser- classic 
obvious service providers are exactly what I described. Telecommunications companies that that really serve as a conduit for right. for this information. It's been expanded a little bit to include uh, entities that that don't handle handle the, the the raw traffic and the raw digital information, but serve as a platform for others to post information on. So the classic classic example is Huffington Post. It is it is a platform set up for third parties to post content. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act protects Huffington Post because they have they have done a number of things required under the DMCA to be protected. The main one is they've registered an agent with the United States Copyright Office to handle takedown notices from copyright holders. So although I haven't although I haven't seen it exactly, I'm 100% certain that the huffingtonpost.com website has a place on it that lists their copyright policy along with the name, address, telephone number, email, anywhere you, any 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 way you want to get a hold of them, their agent that is registered with the US Copyright Office. There's there's some other less obvious things that they need to do, but that's the main one. The other ones are that they can't be involved in any way, a service provider cannot be involved in any way in editing, selecting, designing the copyrighted material. So if they have their hands in things by selecting some images and not selecting or selecting some content and not selecting other content, cropping images, uh, you know, uh, copying some content that someone submitted to use for something else, then they're no longer protected. As long as they stay in this very narrow, narrow range or description of what the DMCA defines as a service provider, they're not liable for infringement. And this is, this is a, it's an ongoing debate. And our company, other companies that you might not necessarily consider a service provider trying to become classified as a service provider. Absolutely. And, and they're, uh, along with fair use, uh, the DMCA is, is, it's a distant second, but it's, it's a clear second in terms of, uh, what I hear more, most often. They, and there are just because someone claims they're a service provider, and just because someone has a uh, a, a registered agent with the, the with the copyright office as well as posted on on their website, does not mean they qualify as a service provider. A service provider has to fit, you know, has to satisfy all these other requirements too. The main ones I described, you can't, in in you know, kind of layman's terms, you just you cannot have a hand in in what the content looks like and, and what it, what it contains. How long ago was this act put into place? I'm not, a, I'm, it's, it's been within 20 years. Okay. So it was a response to, and the law evolves, the copyright law evolves just like any other kind of law. It evolved because of technological changes. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm speculating, but I, I would, I would guess that some attorneys and some photographers and some uh, intellectual property rights holders made a case, you know, made, made case or cases, you know, before the DMCA was in, enacted that, that these companies were violating the Copyright Act. And, you know, laws are typically the result of judges kind of going that direction, uh, 
constituents complaining to their complaining to their representatives that that or businesses complaining to their representatives that this is unfair. And in this case, the DMCA is completely appropriate, in my opinion. Now, would something like Facebook, Instagram like to become a service provider, therefore, and be able to avoid all the issues of infringement and copyright, and then I, they'll follow that I up with? I bet they would. Yeah. yeah, they well, they are. They are. Yeah. Ah. And but uh, you know, I'll just we can limit our discussion to the, the the big ones. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. You know, they're the they're the major ones that. Technically, they qualify as service providers. There, but with with those companies and and there are other companies that fit the same description. There's there's so much more going on with with their platform. Uh, you know, at least from my perspective, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, Facebook are the same as Napster. You know, they 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 provide this platform that. All but well, it, it's not all but it it permits the the permissive infringement of you know limited to photographs in this case because it's primarily photographs in the, in those cases. But and to to potentially oversimplify the situation, they throw their hands up. They're like, well, all we're doing is creating this platform. Just like Napster did, all we're doing is creating this platform. We can't control what people do. If they want to, if they, you know, if they if they don't do the due diligence and figure out whether or not they can download this music or upload this person's photograph, it's not our responsibility. We've complied, and in this case, the law is sh- slowly but surely moving against them. In that they're like any like any case of negligence which is a very, very broad general legal term. In, in ending that negligence case, you have to, and, I'm, and, and this is summarizing quite a bit, but it's negligence if you don't keep up with the market standard and the, and the industry standard. If there is, for example, if there is software or hardware or anything that allows a company like Instagram or, or Pinterest or Facebook to do more than what they're currently doing, create some kind of system that flags, flags potentially copyright, copyrighted material, they're responsible for installing it and using it. And YouTube is-, is a great example of a company that does that. You know, to, to a lot of people's, to a lot of people's um, dislike, there, there is there. I don't know what they use, but but I've heard stories from my clients as well as third parties. YouTube is remarkably quick at identifying potentially copyrighted material and flagging it. Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest do no such thing. And speaking just of my clients, those three companies are are responsible for ninety five percent of the headaches that my clients my clients get because. It's a universe that once your image gets copied and disseminated in Insta- in, on Instagram or Pinterest, you might as well kiss any value to that photograph goodbye. It's shared as it can be shared a zillion times all over the place. Yeah, actually, like just throwing them out the window. Let's jump right, right into this because this is clearly something that we really want to talk about. Yeah. So, can you kind of walk us through then? You know, how does uploading an image to Instagram affect your copyright? Needless to say, how does it benefit you? How does it benefit them and and anyone else out there? And how do we protect our asses? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the current environment is is a double-edged sword for yeah. photographers. I mean, it absolutely is the best and the worst of both worlds. 
there, there is no way that, that a photographer can, can prevent the dissemination of his or her work, period. No watermark, no, no, no kind of, no kind of metadata or anything that you can, you can, you know, embed your photographs with is going to prevent someone from copying it. The upside to that is that that might very well in the big picture be a positive thing. The downside to that is that for the general public, photographs are, are valueless. I mean, there, there's so many of them and they're so easy and it's so effortless to copy them that, that the value is, is next to nothing. Now, we all know that that's not true because there's a market, you know, there's a very active market for uh, commercial photography and, and commercial photographers still, still are able to make a living. And, uh, but outside of, outside of that market, Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook serve as these super highways of infringement where there is little to no barrier to individuals, companies, uh, anyone to just going out and going out and taking, taking copyrighted work and, and then just the universe just expands, you know, the, 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 the universe of that photograph expands just exponentially. And once that happens, there's no, there's no bringing it back. And I, I would venture, I would venture to guess that let's say let's let's choose instagram or uh, instagram just because they they're primar primarily a a platform for photography i would venture to guess that that 90% of the the images that are copied and posted on instagram are copyrighted material just plain and simple now they might not all be actionable you know because they you know a, a non-commercial photographer who has a very small network on instagram you know uh, you know, you might want your friends to copy, uh, the photographs. You might want everyone in your group to, to make copies of them and, you know, add, add, you know, funny faces to them, whatever. But everywhere, everywhere else, photographs of celebrities news events, uh, you know, everything that any photograph of, of any kind of significance I would venture to guess that 90% of those photographs that are being disseminated are violating somebody's copyright and not only violating it, but there's no credit, there's no link, there's no evidence that, that there's a copyright holder at all. So once someone, once one entity makes the decision to do that, then everyone else has this implicit understanding that it's okay to do it. There's a hole in the raft right there. That's what right. you got. And so, it, you know, we, the vast majority of my clients independently have have communicated to me the 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 current problem with those three platforms. Do you those, post on Instagram? I do. I do. I have such a small network; that <laughs> it doesn't. No one sees my no one sees my photographs. But I, you know, I take it I take it seriously, and I, you know, as everyone should, you know, I take take it seriously, composing my photographs and making sure, you know, making sure that that uh, you know I, I have a a manageable group, but I certainly don't c copy and post photographs that aren't mine, you know, that I haven't, I haven't taken. Right, right. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a very real life example of 
how Instagram is single-handedly destroying photographers. <laughs> Pull, that's a pull quote. All right. So, <laughs> so I, I have a couple. I have a couple clients uh, that are you know otherwise otherwise described as paparazzi. They they mm-hmm. live here in New York. Their business is to supply certain clients with photographs of certain people at certain times. That's the way it is. There's a huge market for it. Uh, they they perform this very very valuable role. Uh, you know, their people love to hate them, but they they're the the only the only reason they're in existence is because there's a demand for it. There's an overwhelming demand for their work, and they're really really good photographers. For example, I've had cases where a client takes a photograph, uh, uploads it to his stock agency server never been disseminated uh, to the public never been published and someone breaks into the server steals the photograph and disseminates it on on instagram to different fan sites and the examples the fact pattern of my cases are that that once it gets disseminated uh it's a high quality photograph it's someone that's in the news then inevitably it ends up in the possession of the person who's the subject of the photograph. So it goes from fan sites that might have, might have a hundred followers or a thousand followers to, to the, the subject him or herself that has millions of, of followers. Once that happens, the value of that photograph is zero permanently. So all of the, all of the would be value, a potential value of that photograph is gone and will never be recovered. And less extreme example is uh, the photograph is published one place. It's published in a regular client by re- you know traditional means. It goes to their their agency, who they they have an agreement with to supply all their work to. That agency farms it out to some publication that publishes the work. There have been instances where people literally either screenshot the the uh, the publication's website or actually screenshot the actual physical magazine or or newspaper then put it online no credit no no link no anything and the important thing to remember is once once an image gets into that territory everybody else thinks that it's okay to copy everybody else thinks it's well it doesn't it's not credited there's no link and it's it's on this it's on this individual's website that has millions of followers and 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 occupies a a pretty, a pretty good spot, you know, in the, in the public, in the public view, why, why would it not be okay for me to copy it? I'm just a, I'm just a, now, I'm just is, a small and, player. And all these people have since picked up on it and made use of it. Are they liable in any way or are they just free and clear? Be, Technically, yes. Copyright infringement is strict liability. So if you copy, if you copy, you don't even have to use it. If you make a copy without proper license or permission, you have violated the copyright statute. Regardless of how many generations it's gone Absolutely. through of not being... Absolutely. Okay. So Absolutely. you have a lot of guilty people out there. Yes. And now the vast, vast majority of these cases are not viable. Sure. Um, just just because, I mean, for, for numerous reasons. But, and this happens... The dynamic that, that, that you, just, you just explained happens all the time with big companies. The big companies are second or third or fourth or tenth down the row, and they're like, well, "How are we supposed to know?" Happens all the time, and that's that's just simply not a defense. And, uh, but just to jump back a little bit, let's say for a photographer, you know, more or less like ourselves, who 
small following on Instagram, but Instagram can serve us a little bit because we can get our work out there and someone may bounce back, whether it's just feedback or a small job or whatnot. Instagram, and I guess Facebook owns Instagram, so they don't own anything. They're just, they're claiming that they're just a service provider, right? So they don't have any copyright. They don't own anything on this. Um, and it really, it, it comes down to us whether we want to play the game, right? Whether we want to have the, the double-edged sword, you know, in our back where right. we may get a benefit out of it, but ultimately if something happens, we may not have, you know, the photo may lose its value. That's that's kind of where we're at. And to some degree, we're all complicit then, right? Because we're we're willing to play this this game. And and where will the stopping point be? I mean, and, and I'm going to jump on what Jason just asked me. Um is it going to be a technological thing? Is it going to be a money thing? I mean, if YouTube can do it, why can't Instagram, you know, find an algorithm to, to stop this? Yeah. It, and that, I mean, that, that's the question. Mm -hmm. The question is we're, we're, we're certainly not at a point where everyone feels comfortable. Mm. Everyone feels inherently uncomfortable now. Yeah. Everybody does. The photographers do, Instagram does, all of, you know, the third parties that kind of weighed in, they, everyone feels uncomfortable because we're not in a place where everyone understands and everyone considers fair. Images are remarkably easy to detect online. For example, a solution might very well be Instagram to develop some kind of system where they create a database of images that that people have flagged, authors have flagged, and that it's permanently on this list. From that point on, it's permanently on a list where it needs to be double, you know, it needs to be cross-checked. Any, any incoming uh, information needs to be cross-checked against that database. Or, uh, you know, placing a small amount of responsibility on the, the artist or the photographer to supply a company like Instagram with low res versions of all the, all the photographs that are their copyright and that they don't want, they don't want disseminated on Instagram. Those strike me as very easy, low cost solutions to, that would solve the vast majority of the, I mean, I, I suppose it, it, it impacts commercial photographers the most. You'd have to do a little bit of work. You'd have to do a little bit of work developing or at least editing, you know, your top 10% of photographs that you absolutely positively do not want to be copied and disseminated. But there would be no stopping, you know, amateur photographers from doing the same thing. If you want to invest that little bit of time, then it would effectively shift the burden to, to Instagram to that, it, that would now be in possession of that information and the technology to detect it. It would change the, the balance of, of the way things are right now for the better. So now, how many pictures a day offhand do you know uh, would Instagram post on an average day? Do you have a number in, in mind? I have no Let's idea. Let's just say- Millions. Million. Let's get yeah. millions. Okay, now, uh, there are a number of organizations or companies, whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, one of them would be, I think it's Photo Rights, where, uh, I, I actually, I belonged with them. Um, you send them for X amount of dollars, you uh, you register your photographs and they basically keep an eye out. And That's every right. few weeks I get a report, hey, we found this and quite often, it's stuff I posted years ago. They're still actually digging it up. So That's this right. technology exists. It exists. Now you take that same technology and you have Instagram use it. They have a lot of work they're going through every single day. And then they have to first verify. Now, a lot of this could be automated, but ultimately somebody has to sit there and look and, and, and decide yes or no, do we pursue this? which alone would be a huge expense. Is that one of the reasons why they don't want to bother with it? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't know, but I, I, I would venture to guess that 
you know, they're going to, they're going to get away or at least try to get away with the least possible, the least possible involvement, you know, I, but I, but I do think, I do think the time is going to come and the, the law and the consensus is moving in the direction where they're going to be required to do more. It, 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 would it be fair to say that it's actually a better idea for them right now for a number of reasons not to employ these technologies? Because once you do it, you're accepting responsibilities right. right now. It's still a nebulous it, thing. And, and this is going back to the industry standard for, for negligence. That's why it's so complicated sometimes. So what's the industry standard? I mean, the industry standard for, I mean, the classic example in law school is, you know, a, a shipping company that, that, you know, is 30 years behind the time in navigational equipment and, you know, has a huge tanker run aground. They're negligent because everybody else is employing this advanced navigational system that's cheap, easy, and works really well. If you don't do that, then you're in negligence territory. And I think we're slowly but surely, those companies are moving into that territory where all these other companies can do it. All these other companies can like image rights. And I, I happen to work with Pixie, um, who is an, is another uh, a company that does a, a terrific service for photographers uh, in their interface is sophisticated and easy to use and user-friendly and kind of puts the, the onus on the photographer to kind of pick and choose, you know, w which things they think are viable or not. It's not complicated. Mm -hmm. And if, if Instagram refuses or Facebook or, or Pinterest refuses to engage in that type of technology, you know, voluntarily, they're eventually going to be forced to do it. Let me jump in here really quick just because, uh, you know, we're running a lot longer than I thought and there's a ton of stuff I'd, I think we'd all like to ask, but... I, I, I told you, I, just yeah, stick yeah. to yes or no answers, but no, you keep talking. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can just, maybe you can just throw out maybe a quick, uh, you know, checklist that we can have our listeners, you know, to our listeners to what they should do uh, to protect themselves and maybe just best practices, you know, for once they, once they push click, you know, going yeah. forward. And then there, we'll there are, up. there are two things. Mm -hmm. There are two things that are, that are just disproportionately worth every photographer's time. Mm -hmm. The the first one is uh timely register, all of your photographs. Mm -hmm. That is, that is the number, the, the most efficient, best thing you can do. If you are a commercial photographer or you're, you are, you are concerned about the infringement of your work. Timely registering your work is, is an absolute necessity. And there are a number of ways you can, you can accomplish that under the copyright statute. The main, the easiest one is you, you register it uh, within three months of first publication. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, kind of the backside of it is you can register a work within one month of infringement. Mm -hmm. So it's a little trickier mm -hmm. um, because you have to know when the infringement took place. Right. Um, there's no, but there's does no discovery. Does the work have to be published? I mean, can you just register an image you took that hasn't been published yet? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, if you, if you register a work prior to publication, it's automatically timely registered. Right. Wait, that, that's so the best way to do it. Best right way to do it. And, and the, my clients who are the best at timely registering their work, register their work in groups every three months. So you, cannot lose. 
Now, there's, if I'm not mistaken, it's like about fifty something dollars for up to seven hundred and fifty images or something like that. It's not expensive. It's not expensive, and I th- I thought it was thirty five and might be fifty. It could be. I think thirty five might be. Yeah. It's remarkably inexpensive. And now they, the, although they reduce the number of images that you can uh, register as a group, I believe it's still in the neighborhood. It's a couple hundred. I think it might might even be as high as seven fifty. It's well, well. I mean, the, the trick time is to just effort. cherry pick. You don't just take your, That's just right. don't download your, upload your card, create your memory right. card and go all of them. And the copyright statute has a giant fork in the road. So one side is actual damages and the other side is statutory damages. Actual damages is for images that are not timely registered. Statutory damages are for timely registered images. If an infringement is determined to be willful on the, on the, the part of the infringer, then you're eligible for up to $150,000 per incident. So those are really big numbers that come with very little effort. And speaking as a plaintiff's attorney, the option of litigating with statutory damages and fees, by the way, that come with it, were in completely different territory than actual damages. So actual damages, you're limited to proving with, with no level of speculation uh, what your actual damages are. So the so, truth of earning a living in photography is to putting out your stuff there well in advance and hoping you get ripped off many <laughs> times. Uh, <laughs> find a good lawyer. There's two. There's so the, two, so the other one is, um, and this is, uh, it, my clients have, have like a, a very wide range of uh, views on the subject matter. Uh, and, it, and it concerns, you know, attaching your copyright or watermark to the image. Lots of photographers don't like to do that because it, it, it changes the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I found is what, what, what is kind of a happy medium is including a, including a watermark, but one that is very, very faint. It's there. Um, it's obvious. It's not in the corner. Uh, you know, it's either diagonal or across that is so light and is, you know, is at 10% or 20% uh, that you, the, the image can't be exploited without someone noticing it. And it's very difficult to remove. Uh, the only problem with putting a copyright notice in a corner is that it can be easily cropped out. And that happens all the time, all the time. So those two things, there are other things you can do, but those two things, if you're going to pick and choose what's the most efficient, those two things dwarf and everything else. And what's the value of writing copyright in your, in your metadata? Is there any value to that at all? There is. Um, the, the value is uh, if there is existing metadata with a copyright properly credited, uh, you get the assumption that, assumption is not the right word, but the burden shifts concerning willfulness. Gotcha. So if it's there and it's easily accessible and it says clearly copyright whomever, then the burden shifts to the defendant and the infringement to prove that the infringement was not willful. Otherwise, otherwise it remains with the plaintiff. Gotcha. Okay. I think, I mean, like I said, there's a lot we could talk about. Oh, a lot yeah. of questions <laughs> we have left on the table, but it's going to have to wait for another time. Um, quick question. What are you shooting right now? 
Not a whole lot. <laughs> I shoot. I shoot a lot with my phone. Okay. And five yeah. years ago, I would never, ever Ever-sum have admitted that. that right. But I shoot a lot with my phone. Oh, you're not yeah, alone. Right. That's. That, I mean, we in the past few days we did a lot of recording, and that topic came up a lot. Yeah. I, yeah. I shoot with my four by. I still have a four by five. Oh, cool. And I, I still have a rolly. I, but I just. I just, I don't shoot a lot. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. shoot a lot. I shoot portraits of my kids with my go. four by five. There, all yeah. right. Well, this, yeah. there you go. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So what so, kind of digital back do you have in your four by five? Oh, I don't <laughs> shoot. No, I don't have any. <laughs> and, I sh- and I shoot slides too. I shoot four by five slides. Wow. Okay. That when you get them, I mean, I shot, I shot digital slides for like 15 years and, you know, I, I got hired specifically because I shot that way and then that went away. But there was a long period of time where where I got hired because I shot four by five slides because they look different. You know, oh, they, it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah. When yep. you get it right, you get it right. And it's, and it just like, you cannot believe it can look that good. Yeah. Uh, but even black and white too. Is there, is it kind of a clear moment when a photographer should reach out to a lawyer and, and should kind of pursue a case? I mean, is it about the size of the the infringer, the, the the company that infringes? Is it about how much you can make? Is it about, unless you want to make a stand, of course, you know, I mean, is there... Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I feel calls from all different types of people. Mm. Uh, and there's really no, there's no, no really, I mean, I would say every case is worth pursuing at a off, base level. Right? <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Oh. And, I'm, and I make that clear to a lot of clients too, that, you know, these cases, they're not, you know, they might not be huge, and they might not be, you know, your, the first thing I explain to my clients is that even, even the upper end of my clients, we're not talking about a windfall. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, things like that, they, they don't exist. Right. Like they're, they're, I've had plenty of cases and I've, I've had plenty of very good results, but a photographer who is not uh, versed in the process is under the impression that all they have to do is catch somebody using their work and they're, they're going to, and it just doesn't exist that way. It doesn't exist that way for so many reasons. And, but that being said, there are cases, even small scale that are worth pursuing, even at a, at a very low level, Mm -hmm. even if you never plan to litigate Mm -hmm. they're at the base level, they serve a purpose to put that. It's another brick in the wall. That's right. Mm -hmm. To, we're not going to, you you, we're not going to just kind of roll over. Right. And you generally implied that you feel that, you know, we're, we are on a path moving forward where photographers will be more protected, where images will have a little bit more protection and, and you won't, we won't see kind of this, this wild west of uh, infringement that we are seeing or have been seeing for the yeah. past 10 years. Do you feel that we're generally moving that way? I do. Slowly I but do. surely. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's difficult because, uh, you know, I'll use my, I'll use my children as an example. Their universe and their perspective is completely different from ours in that they have never had a sense of ownership in specifically other photographs. I mean, it's just, it's different. They don't treat them the same way. They treat them as, they treat them as, you know, uh, just these interchangeable parts that, uh, that can, that are meant to be shared. Uh, and that, that, that inherently is difficult, uh, to square with, the other end of the spectrum where these legitimate, extremely talented, uh, you know, uh, longtime commercial photographers are fighting on the same, the same battlefield. 
so it's difficult, but it it um, the the copyright laws favor photographers. As long as you don't get that judge in the uh, yeah. Virginia District Court, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, well, after the case, we'll ask you to come back or we'll do a Skype or something like that, maybe. Um, awesome. David, it's been it's been quite informative. Uh, uh, we, we covered more th territory than I even think we expected to and got more information than we ever thought we'd see. Uh, and it's a big subject, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, if people want to see, um, uh, check out your website at, or maybe look at your photographs, uh, where should they be going? My my firm website is daviddeal.com, and it's all one word. It's D-A-V-I-D-D-E-A-L.com. Okay. All right. And uh, again, it's- uh, And your Instagram account? Yeah, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's private. <laughs> <laughs> is there an advantage of making your, your account private? I mean, in, in this sense, in the legal sense? It, uh, I, I don't know. My 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 network is so small yeah. that it probably doesn't make a difference right. either way. Right, right, right. Not after <laughs> this <right>. show. <laughs> uh, All right. Anyway, David's terrific. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and very being here welcome. in the studio. Uh, if you are not a subscriber to the B&H Photography Podcast, your time has come. All you have to do is head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Overcast, or Spotify. You can always find us on the B&H Explorer website and the ever-growing B&H Photography podcast Facebook group page and tell them that Al sent you. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>